Some of the most severe COVID-19 outbreaks in the United States have occurred in correctional facilities. Amid ongoing efforts to reduce the risk of infection in these settings, researchers are considering whether people who are incarcerated should be included in multi-site efficacy trials of COVID-19 vaccine candidates after there's some evidence that these candidates are safe. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Holly Taylor, a research bioethicist at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Taylor has co-authored a perspective article about the ethical issues involved in including incarcerated people in vaccine research. Dr. Taylor, you write in your perspective article that people who are incarcerated are particularly vulnerable to acquiring infectious disease, and we've seen that play out over the past several months with COVID-19. Can you talk a bit about the factors that contribute to disease spread in correctional facilities? Sure. So one has to do with the infrastructure of modern-day prisons. As we know, physical distancing, having access to clean water and soap, as well as access to masks and maybe even gloves in that setting are really important to reduce infection. And it's not clear that either space can be made or the proper protective supplies are provided in prisons. We do know, for example, that in some cases, prisons have decided to release some who have been incarcerated in order to free up space to allow for physical distancing, but that hasn't happened universally. So being in close contact certainly puts those who are incarcerated at an additional risk. In addition, people who are incarcerated tend to have a variety of additional comorbidities, some of which may have particular impacts on their immune system, which puts them at higher risk, maybe not necessarily of infection, though it might, but it may put them at risk of developing more severe disease. So given the epidemiology of the background conditions that prisoners enter the system with, it puts them at additional risk of infection, both given the infrastructure as well as their personal characteristics. So you mentioned one step that might protect incarcerated people is releasing some of them to limit the numbers in the facilities. Has that been effective? Have other measures been effective in protecting incarcerated people? Well, it's a really good question, and I don't know that I have the empirical data handy. It's definitely true that some jails and prisons have made a choice to release incarcerated people in order to create more space, specifically in response to the COVID pandemic. Now, whether sort of releasing some of that space indeed has led to a reduction in infection, I don't think we know. Theoretically, having additional distance could reduce the likelihood of infection, but I'm not aware of anyone tracking that. So it's a really important question, right? I guess another way to say it would be among the things we might do to reduce infection, if we had strong empirical evidence that releasing some nonviolent prisoners was a really effective way to reduce transmission, then we might want to act on that in addition to providing the barrier protections that I mentioned for those who we can't release for a variety of reasons. So turning to vaccine research, 
Have any trials of COVID-19 vaccine candidates enrolled incarcerated people to date, or are there any active plans to start enrolling them? Yeah, so in the United States, the answer to that is no. I can't speak to the trials that are going on overseas. And it has to do with a variety of issues that we covered in the perspective. So just a little background. At the NIH Clinical Center, myself, my fellow faculty, and our fellows serve on a bioethics consultation service. And the question about whether or not we ought to think about including prisoners in COVID vaccine trials came to us from the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. So that's a long way of answering your question that it was definitely something that was under consideration. So there have been successful collaborations in the past between academic medical centers and individual jail or prison sites in the conduct of human subject research. And those individuals, those investigators ask the question, are we thinking about including prisoners in COVID vaccine trials? And so that then brought the question to our consult service. So it was actively under consideration. If we then step back and say whether the human subject regulations allow for the inclusion of prisoners as currently written would be one question. It's possible to read the regulations and read the specific part of the regulations that allows for the inclusion of prisoners in human subject research when it has to do with a disease that is common to prisoners. Now, it's a bit of a maybe not a catch-22, but we know that the reason that COVID-19 is more common in prisoners really has to do with infrastructure issues, right? It's not something about being a prisoner that puts you at higher risk for COVID infection. Another way to say that might be something like, we know that people in facilities like nursing homes, like prisons, like hospitals are at higher risk for things like MRSA because it's harder to keep everything clean. It's easily transmitted. So it's similar to COVID in that sense. And there has been research done in the past on MRSA in prisons because there's an elevated risk in the prison population. So we've used that notion in the past to apply to things that are more prevalent in prison settings, but we could make the opposite argument that it's really not about being a prisoner. It's about being in a congested facility. So if we got over the hurdle of clarifying that this study, if sent to, there'd need to be sort of an extra step as human subject is generally reviewed. So let's say I'm at an academic medical center and I want to extend my multi-center trial into the setting of a prison, right? I'm not going to do my study only in prisoners, but I want to allow for the enrollment of prisoners into my multi-center trial. I would need to have a relationship with that facility, whether it's a jail or a prison. 
And then I would need to have that reviewed by my own institutional review board. And it's the institutional review board that makes the decision of the first decision about whether the trial meets that particular criteria. So let's say that my academic medical center IRB says, we agree with you, Holly. We think that as designed and as justified, your trial meets this criteria. The next thing that has to happen is that the protocol and the decision has to be forwarded to the Office of Human Research Protections at the Department of Health and Human Services, and they have the final say. So that's one hurdle, the sort of regulatory hurdle. And then the other hurdle that we identify in our perspective is that let's say we get over that hurdle and now at the Academic Medical Center, I am going to implement my study in the prison setting. So now I'm going to recruit subjects for my trial. Now, the subjects are very different than the subject who comes into my clinic and I invite them to be in the study. They are coming to me. In this case, I need to go to them. So one question, one initial question might be, does the jail or prison have the facilities to allow me to come to interact with potentially eligible subjects in a private space? Is there adequate equipment available on site in order for those subjects to actively participate in my trial? Will they be given access to the tools they need in order to participate? So for example, It's my understanding that most of these trials ask you to keep a diary. Each day, you maybe are taking your temperature, you're looking at the vaccine site. At very least, then the person would need a piece of paper and a pencil. Now, outside of the prison, folks are likely using web-based spaces or apps to update that information, but we might be able to make an exception in this case that paper and pencil might be appropriate. But if we can work that out, then the next thing we need to think about is, well, this is a study that's testing whether a vaccine, let's take the Moderna vaccine for an example. They've fully accrued but did not include any prisoners, but let's imagine they are going to do that. Now, the, what would need to happen is that the individuals who are approached to participate in the trial would obviously need to be monitored carefully. So we'd have to assume that that's going to happen on site. So there'd need to be a pretty high tech clinic site and or the ability to collect samples that are then sent back to my academic medical center for testing. So the vaccine we're testing is to test whether it reduces symptomatic disease. Now, we have to expect that if it's 50% better at reducing the risk of symptomatic disease, some people are going to get symptomatic disease, and some, maybe, hopefully not many, but some are going to get severe disease. What happens if someone gets either symptomatic or severe disease? Does the prison or jail have the facilities on site to take care of the person? Are they going to be sent to the academic medical center? Is there going to be a guard at the academic medical center? Are they going to be monitored? It becomes more and more complicated as the potential outcomes happen. So it may be a rare event, 
But I think it's a really important thing when we think about safety and what level of risk is reasonable to expose the incarcerated persons to and to assure that if they're willing to enroll and expose themselves to that level of risk, that we have in place all the plans we need to respond as efficiently, quickly as we can so that they're not treated any differently than someone who enrolls in the trial out in the world and goes to the ER, for example, if they have a severe response or they start developing severe symptoms. So assuming that those substantial hurdles can be overcome, (laughs) what do you see as the main potential benefits and the main concerns associated with including incarcerated people in this kind of research? So if we could overcome both of those hurdles, we might be able to consider the incarcerated person just like any other person, right? (laughs) So you and I are not incarcerated. We have the ability to make a free choice about going and enrolling in a vaccine trial. So the reasons why you and I might do that would be very similar to the person who's incarcerated. On one hand, we may have altruistic motives. We may want to contribute to the identification and eventual approval of a vaccine product that might help us or everybody else. And we might also think, well, I might now get early access to a potential effective vaccine. That's a general benefit that someone who enrolls in a trial may expect. Now, at the same time, I need to appreciate that I may be putting myself at risk of an adverse event or some unknown that we don't know yet because that's the whole reason (laughs) that the vaccine is under study. So if all of those barriers are taken care of, then I am the incarcerated person, you and I am the incarcerated person, are all making an informed choice about the same potential benefits and potential risks. So from that perspective, the, the incarcerated person has the ability to say, I think that I would like to enroll on one hand because I think it's a good thing to do. I'd like to act on my altruistic motive. I may also get exposed to a potentially effective vaccine, and I can be thoughtful about the level of risk that I am exposing myself to, which gets back to those hurdles that we have to overcome. So the goal here is for the fair distribution of the benefits and the burdens of research. And so if we are all the same in terms of our status as competent moral agents, then we all have the ability to make a choice about whether or not we want to be involved in that. So it basically gives the incarcerated person the same opportunity as all of us out here have. So those hurdles that we talked about are important as it relates to one, you want to make sure that the incarcerated person isn't choosing to enroll because their situation is so bad that they see the possibility of getting a vaccine that's 50% effective and an offer they can't refuse, an undue influence. It overwhelms their ability to make a voluntary decision because the benefit of getting that vaccine outweighs or maybe muddies their ability to consider the risks that they might be exposed to. So you have to take care of that second hurdle in terms of 
availability of personal protective behaviors, washing your hands, wearing a mask, keeping physical distance, and also address the worries that we might have about the level of risk that the person might be exposed to if they are given the vaccine in order to enable them to make this parallel decision about sharing the benefit and the burden of enrollment, just like everyone else who is not incarcerated has. Finally, and more globally, what do you see as the most important priorities for protecting the health and the rights of people who are incarcerated during the pandemic? Wow. So that's a really great question. If I was in charge, the first thing that I would focus on is attending to the current environment in which incarcerated people are living and consider how best to, we probably can't remove their risk, but to minimize their risk of infection. And that's going to take a level of political will and financial investment that is demonstrable. It would be saying something like the following. First, I might want to address the distance issue and maximize the opportunity to release nonviolent prisoners, incarcerated people, sooner rather than later. I think there's actually been some work on prioritizing or ranking those who we ought to release today. So people who are in for nonviolent crimes who are older, who are close to the end of their sentence, maybe have comorbidities in addition that may make them at higher risk. And then I would focus on the infrastructure of the prisons and consider whether there are ways that I can, we can reduce the transmission inside of the institution. So I would want to make sure that they had access to clean water and soap or the hand sanitizer that seems to be everywhere. I want to give them the means to keep their hands clean. I would really want them to have masks. And I don't know enough to say how that works in a prison. It may be that we would want to, I guess what I mean by is sort of, does that impair the ability of recognition? Maybe we need to invest in masks that have clear panels in them or something, if that's a safety concern. And then I would want to increase the likelihood that people can keep distance, which again, I think is a big challenge in our prisons, which are already overcrowded. And of course, all of those efforts keeps those who are employed by the prison safe or safer. So the prison guards, the prison staff, the cafeteria staff, the medical staff, any actions we can take to reduce the level of risk of transmission certainly helps the prison population, but it also helps those who are on site and taking care of welfare and safety. Thank you, Dr. Taylor.